there is no way that I prayed enough for this sermon. No way. And if all you're going to get this morning is my best unpacking of this text of Scripture, uh, that is not going to be enough. What we need is for the Spirit to be gracious to us, to illuminate the words and convince us of the words. And 30 minutes of me talking to you about heavy words like that pale in comparison to one second of His grace to help you see beauty and truth in there. So let's just make sure that we pray about that together. Now, Father, be gracious to us. A jar of clay and a room full of jars of clay. But I pray that we would be your jars of clay and that we would hold fast to Christ and all that he has for us in his word. So just help us this morning, I pray. Amen. Um, Second thing is this. And I'm right-handed, so I keep finding myself turning this way. Okay. No skips. No skips. In the life of our church, we are committed to what is called expository preaching, which means, as a general rule, we work through text of Scripture from beginning to end all the way through. No skips at all. I have teenage children, and they are unbelievable at skipping songs on the radio. Just, they can hear just like a beat, a note, and they know, skip it, skip it. I don't like that song. I don't like that artist. So we are constantly changing the station. Um, American church culture is exactly like that with the Bible. Skip it, skip it. Pastor, you better skip that one. And uh, we are devoted to not being like Thomas Jefferson, like Matt was saying. At the Smithsonian, you can see his Bible. He literally took a blade and removed what he didn't like and glued back together what he did like and said, this is going to be my Bible. We don't want to be that way. We believe that all Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. All the words, all the thoughts, all the themes, all the truths, all the doctrines, all the commands, all the promises, even the sharp ones. And really, I think you've heard me say, especially the sharp ones. Those are the ones that we especially need to hear. Now, the reason I started with no skips was this is absolutely one of those texts of Scripture that Bostonians love to skip over. Here's the big idea that we're going to see. The Lord will judge his people. And it would be a terrifying thing to fall into or under that judgment. And you heard Amy read those words pretty much in black and white. All right, before we start, I want to put an old school Puritan text up on the screen. So here it is. I don't know if you've heard it. In the godly fear and love embrace. In other words, in the soul of a Christian who has come to see the holiness of God and also the grace of God, both of these things are going on. We love the Trinity and we fear the Trinity, both at the same time. 
Okay, I know that busts our brain as secular Bostonians. We would say, how can you be afraid of someone who you love and who loves you? Come on, man. It's either or. It's not both and. Okay, let me love you with an illustration that I hope helps set this fastball up for you. A few weeks ago, my parents took our kids to the Fuddruckers at Jordan's Furniture in Reading. Have you been there? All right, it's a fun place to be on a Friday night. There's this three different places in the big lobby that they have. One is a jelly bean store. Okay, you've seen this? Who's into that? I was like, who is going to spend money on expensive jelly beans? Um, Then there was Richardson's ice cream, which I was totally into that. I placed my order, and the girl behind the counter said, Sir, did you say you wanted the peanut butter topping on top of the peanut butter Oreo ice cream? And I said, yes. (laughs) Yes, I did. Then there's this thing called the Adventure Ropes course. I don't know if you've seen it up there. But 25 or 30 feet up is this cool little indoor ropes course. And, I mean, way up. The top one is about where this soffit is here. Uh, suspension bridges and zip lines and platforms and skywalks. Here's how this works. You pay them a bunch of money. That's how that starts, that transaction. And then they give you, they fit you with this gear. It's super tight, it's firm, it's secure. It's actually hooked into a channel above you that follows you through the whole course. And here's what the instructor says to you, looks at you and says, hey, As long as you have this gear on, you're good. Don't be scared. There's nothing to be afraid of. You don't have to fear that fall. It's literally what they say to you. Now, is that counsel true or false? Is it good counsel or is it bad counsel? So it depends. It's perfectly true. As long as you have that gear on... And that gear is secure, straight up. You have nothing to fear. But imagine some kid getting up on that ropes course up there and going rogue, pretentious, cavalier, and saying, I can do this ropes course harness free. I reject my need for, and I reject your provision of this stupid gear. What would a good ropes course instructor say to that 13-year-old from Wilmington? They would say, hey, don't mess around with this. That fall down into the concrete could be fatal or at the very least, it's going to mess you up wicked bad. Traction and some other words that you don't want to know about. You should Fear falling. In other words, in the heart of a good ropes courser, fear and love embrace. They fear the seriousness of the fall. They love the provision of the gear, and there is no contradiction in there. That is exactly what a good pastor will foster in the souls of his people. 
we have not only come to see the grace and the mercy of God in the gospel and love it, but we've come to see the holiness and the seriousness of sin, and we know this God is not to be trifled with or profaned or abandoned or dismissed because, as Amy read, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of this living God. This is what we mean in the life of our church if you hear us press you toward godly fear. It is not a fear that breeds insecurity or anxiety or dread. It is a fear that partners with love and breeds vigilance. It moves us to take super hold tight of the gear of grace and strap it on and make sure every day, every week, every season, every situation, it's on tight. That is the fear that these words are supposed to foster in you this morning. That is the fear that I am pressing on you today. Okay, you ready to walk through the door with me now? All right, before we hit the words, remember the context. Here it is. The pastor, inspired to write the words of the book of Hebrews, is writing to church people like you, like me. They were thinking about renouncing and abandoning Jesus and his gospel, just disappearing. I'm out. And he was doing everything in his power to call them to not do that. That is all 13 chapters of the book of Hebrews. Don't go there. And so he is making use of every means that he has. He is using both carrots and sticks. Now here's how we have talked about them here. The carrots in the book of Hebrews have been these gospel glories. They just knock you over, and everyone in this room has been good with those sermons. Boom! They make you feel warm, and you're in. You love the carrots. We have been calling the sticks... Sober warnings. And almost nobody is good with the sticks. This is especially true about the American church culture that you are a part of, right? I was at Barnes & Noble the other day at the Prudential Center in the city. I was at a professional development for my job. And if there was a bookstore, I had to jump in there and check it out. So I found my way to the way back. And it was the Christian living section, and it was tall and wide. And I looked all the way down at all the labels and all the titles of all of the books. Every single book in the Christian living section was either Christian self-help. You know what that is? Like we baptize some Bible verses, and then we tell you, you can do this. Or gospel carrots, which are fantastic and beautiful and necessary. God loves you, has unbelievable intentions for your life. Boom, we are good with that. But not one book on either shelf was a warning, not one. Now, what's the problem with that balance? The problem is that's not the balance of the gospel as it comes to us in your Bible. There are both carrots And there are sticks, and we need them both. And the sticks are means of grace, pulling you deeper into obedience and deeper into joy. That's what they are. 
therefore. Now, how many of these sharp warnings are there in the book of Hebrews? Anybody remember? There's five of them. Over these months, we've rolled through three with you. We're up to number four. And I I think you just heard that this one gets pretty intense. So all the moms and all the dads in the room know what it's like when your kid has ignored you three straight times. Have you been there before? I told you. I told you. I told you. Am I actually having to tell you this again for the fourth time? You feel that? That's escalation that happens in these warnings in the book of Hebrews. If you read them side by side, by side by side by side, you would go, whoa, these are getting more intense as we move. So here's number four. I want you to hear the whole thing. Read it. These words are more important than mine, and then I'll try and help them make sense to you. So there's going to be four screens of scripture. Let's hear it one more time. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but just fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume God's adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses in the Older Covenant, capital punishment, they died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And this was defiant disobedience. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So these are the words of the Lord. All right, let's work them together. Number one is this. Who is this text not talking to? Let's do that first. This text is not talking about people who love Jesus but and his gospel but struggle with sin. Not who this text is to. Tuesday night was our manhood track. We've got some future men in the life of this church being discipled. And that whole night was about sexual purity. And we pleaded with those guys to not panic if Today, they are struggling big time with sexual sin, sexual purity. But to think in terms of trajectory, what direction am I headed in? We are for you and with you in your movement toward holiness. And that's such a breath of fresh air. It removes fear. It invites freedom to go after Jesus knowing you're a failure and you're going to mess up. This is not the text that we pressed on sexual purity night in the manhood track. You feeling me? This is not the one that we went to. These guys are in a battle. And this was not the verse that they needed to hear because it did not apply. So if you are here today and you're like, man, I struggle with greed. I drink too much. I refuse to submit to my husband. I still have a filthy mouth. I got all kinds of issues. You should be safe here. Those things are a problem, but they're not the problem I'm talking about today. We're with you in moving toward holiness in those, th- in those things. So don't feel f- fearful or threatened by these words. That's not today. Who are these words to? This text is talking about people who receive, but then reject Jesus and his gospel and settle into a life of sin. 
resolved. I'm good. I don't need Jesus. I don't need his cross. I don't need his Bible. I certainly don't need his church. I'm good without the grace in that gospel. The text said it in five intense ways. Let's just put them all up at the same time. Oh, so number one, sorry, they rejected his gospel. Here's the verses. No, you can go back. That one. Sinning deliberately. Did everybody hear that? So that verb is the present continuous tense in Greek that it was written in, which means I am settled and going down this road. No hesitations. Deliberately sinning. The text said that these were adversaries opposed themselves to the grace of the gospel. They trampled underfoot the Son of God. Jesus came and was announced to them as laying his life down for them. And instead of receiving him as of surpassing worth, they just marched right over him on their way to doing their own thing. It said that they profaned the blood of the covenant. I forget who it was. Was it somebody in here? Somebody, I was with somebody and they were like, you got to taste this drink. This is my favorite drink. You got to try it. So I tried it and then I was like, eh. Now that doesn't matter if you don't like somebody's drink, but that is the tone of this word. The blood of Christ, the cup of the new covenant. I tried it, whatever. It's just juice. And then finally, insulted the Spirit. Uh, God in His Spirit moved toward them in grace, and they just blew Him off. Settled in their pursuit of an action of putting the gospel aside. This is like me with skinny jeans, right? Somebody was like, you have no jeans. You wear the same pair of jeans all the time. Why don't you get some new jeans? Old Navy's got some skinny jeans. I am settled in my rejection of the idea of ever pulling a pair of skinny jeans on. I am in adversarial opposition toward that idea. That is the stance that these people were in danger of taking in their lives. A settled practice rejection. But what's even worse is number two, feel this with me, they should have known better. They should have known better. Let's work on this. So everybody, regardless of whether they have ever heard the name Jesus, every human being that has ever moved into salient maturity is a responsible, moral agent. God has written his law on our consciences. We know. Every one of us knows that we owe our lives our existence, our worship, our allegiance to someone beyond us. We know it. But someone who has also heard the gospel, someone who has also been walked through what God has done through Christ for sinners, someone who has stared down the cross and the resurrection and the mercy and the love of Jesus right in the face, tasted it, experienced it, and then threw it in the trash and defied it, that is really bad. That's who this text is to. 
So again, we saw it three different times. He said, received a knowledge of the truth. He said, we're a part of God's people. This one may surprise you, but we talk about the visible and the invisible church, right? The visible church, those who are gathered to Jesus in any given Sunday, is not necessarily those who will make it to the end with Jesus. So they're a part of God's people, but not a part of God's people in the broader horizon of things. Or he says it like this, they were sanctified. This, this word means set apart. And in this context, it seems to mean that they were separated from their old life and from this world in a pronounced way. And they were under the influence of the means of grace and the preaching and teaching of the gospel and the love of the saints and the mission of God and even the sacraments. All of this visibly sanctified, set apart from the world. But it doesn't stick. And they reject those means of grace and get to the point where this happens and this is the third idea in the text. Now there is nothing between them and the wrath of God. When we say wrath of God, let's make sure that you hear this rightly, we do not mean petty, grumpy, mean, cruel, unpredictable, fly off the handle, throw a temper tantrum, sinful anger that you may have experienced. This is not Sonny Corleone in The Godfather. This is not a bad dad with a hard heart in a white tank top beating on his kids for no reason because he's a punk. That is not the wrath of God. The wrath of God is his settled opposition to sin. And it's a good thing. And you know it. You know it. We are made in God's image. And so we see that in our own souls, we get wrathful when we see sin or evil or injustice. You know it. This is basically all that Twitter is, right? I want to go like see Twitter's mission statement and say, was it to put on display the reality of wrath in the universe? Maybe that's 80% of what Twitter is. Uh, Evidence that we all know that wrath is a good thing. Now, I am not defending the moral compass of the people who, who tweet at times. I am saying we all know that it is good and right to oppose evil when we see it. England and this little boy being starved to death and refused to be kept alive. That showed up a lot on Twitter. And when you saw it, you were like, yeah, somebody, somebody needs to be held accountable for what is happening. You feel that? You know it's right. That's all that the wrath of God is, just writ large over creation. These people have separated themselves from the one thing propitiating that wrath of God for them on their sin. Here's how the text said it. It's terrifying. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Listen, every single human being on this planet has been given a way to escape the justice for their sin, the cross of Christ. But if you take that and you spit on it and you reject it 
and you abandon it. You are throwing off the gear of the gospel. Now it's just you and falling into the hands of a holy God. And here's the words that Scripture uses. Judgment. Fury of fire, meaning God takes personally, emotionally, when his creatures defy him to his face. Punishment and vengeance. This wrath of God is right, and it's coming, but only for those who refuse his means of grace. Only for those who receive Jesus and his gospel, but then turn their backs on him and just will have nothing to do with him. All right, now, we know where this plane lands in our text, right? It lands on that first generation of God's people who sent Jesus to the cross. In Matthew's gospel, it's very interesting. He's preaching in a village called Capernaum. And he says these words that you may not expect Jesus to say if you have been taught that he is nothing but an effeminate man in a robe and only says nice and pithy things. Hear these words of Christ. He was in this village, in this village. He was as close to them as I am to you. This close to them. And in real time, he loved them and he gospeled them and he healed their sick. And he worked miracles. And they were 10 feet away from seeing this on display. And they took it all in and they still rejected him. Part of the crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him. This is what Jesus said to them. He said, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Not my words, Jesus' words. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. In other words, yes, the village of Sodom received the wrath of God for its wickedness and is, is gone, is no more. But I never preached the gospel in that village. I wasn't loving and healing their sick five feet away from them. But I am right here with you right now. And you are settling in rejection of me. That is much worse. These words to the Hebrews is written to that same generation of people. And if you read your history, you know that in 70 AD, the wrath of God fell on that generation of people and Jerusalem was raised to the ground and it was absolutely terrifying. Here's what happened. That generation fell into the hands of the living God. The same thing was at stake with the people receiving this letter, so you need to feel the context of these words. But we have to then end by asking, what about us? What about our day? Who in our day needs to hear this loving warning? And I mean hear it. So I have three ideas. You may have some others. Here's one. How about our commonwealth? Think about that with me. So in a few weeks in here, actually next Monday, February 7th, we're hosting a training in here. And the name of the training is Faithfulness 
in a post-Christian context. I'm super pumped about this. We've got my friend Ed Marcel from Troy, New York coming. He is a missional savant. He's going to walk us through how did we get here and what do we do now. But the name of the training scared the life out of me this week when I realized I had to open these words for you. Faithfulness in a post-Christian context. Now that is invigorating missionally, right? There is so much work for us to do in building a strong, faithful church together. But it is also terrifying if the words that we're looking at today are true. So Massachusetts used to be what we might call a gospel-centered commonwealth. Uh, Just spend a half hour in your history books and you can't miss this. Go to the, what do they call them? The primary sources, though, because they're being deleted and edited over time. The primary sources, you will see the fear of God. You know that this commonwealth was founded by the Puritans, right? They prayed literally on the dock before they left England. God be with us in this adventure. They wanted this Massachusetts Bay Colony to be a city on a hill that shows what it would be like if a people feared God, loved God, were caught in that embrace. Massachusetts, 1780, we wrote up our Constitution. Go read the preamble. Just read it. You'll be blown away at the God's centrality of those words. Now, I know the Massachusetts Bay Colony was screwed up in a hundred ways. The witches, the Indians, no one is defending the things that were done. Not at all. But at one time... This commonwealth feared God. In other words, we are addressed by this text. There's no question about it. We should know better. That's what makes the state of our state even more breathtakingly awful. You know that we're now the third least Bible-minded metropolitan area in the United States. So they ranked all 100. New Bedford, Providence was last. Boston was 98th. Do you know that we used to teach kids how to read by going through a reformed primer? That was in the first Massachusetts schools. You know how they learned the letter A? In Adam's fall, we sinned all. This is Massachusetts schools. Gospel centrality, even in kindergarten. If you Google, don't do it right now, but if you Googled, The Massachusetts State Laws, Part 1, Title 12, Chapter 71, Section 31. Do you know what it says right now? A portion of the Bible shall be read daily in our public schools. They didn't get to deleting that one in there yet. This is who we were at one time. You know that we had a family ask the Roosevelt School when they were beginning to put the transgender books in the kindergarten, first grade library for mandatory reading, if we could donate Jesus storybook Bibles to put on the shelf for those kids, this commonwealth with this history, absolutely not, no way. I can think of one context that needs to hear these words. In a godly commonwealth, fear and love embrace. There is no fear of God in Massachusetts, and we should know better. 
No question. All right, how about this one? Our church or our churches. Us first. We look in the mirror first. We are surrounded by churches who have thrown off the gear of the gospel. If you don't believe me, read up on it or just take a tour of the city this summer. Literally teaching their people to defy the law of God is like literally happening in real time in our day, making an utter mockery of the doctrine of the cross, celebrating sin. Churches, churches in these cities, we should know better. If there's anybody that should know that these beautiful, helpful words of Scripture are in their Bible, it should be our churches. There is a generation or two or three or four, I don't know, of pastors and elder boards and deacon committees that will have to give an account for the souls of the people in this area and us as well. In godly churches, fear and love embrace. That's where the life is. That's where the joy is. Knowing what God has done and saying yes I'm in. And then last one, of course, is ourselves. We cannot be hypocrites and read these verses of Scripture and say they're awesome, but not first have them hit you. And first of all, have them hit me. If you have heard the proclamation of the grace and the gospel, I can't even believe the love of God to you and your families and your children that he has invited you into this, an English-speaking country with the freedom of religion where the gospel can be pressed on your soul. Unbelievable. If he has fitted you with gospel gear, the forgiveness of your sins, the gift of the Spirit, the freedom from the ridiculousness and the lies of this world, don't presume upon his kindness. Don't do it. Please, don't go your own way and throw off the gear of the gospel. Make it the great ambition of your life to make sure that that gear is secure. Jesus Christ is of surpassing worth, infinite value. And he has taken on himself all of the wrath of God that you deserve. Receive him and never let him go. That is the implication of this warning. Take heed to it with me today. All right, let's pray. Father, you've made perfectly clear that you're there. All we gotta do is look at a newborn baby or some of these flowers outside this church, or the stars later on tonight. You're there. You've made it perfectly clear in our conscience. When we sin, we know it. You have taken on flesh to redeem us to yourself through the cross. You have set the world in such a way that you will never wink at or joke about or trifle with sin. It is a horror, and it harms people, and you will not have it but you have provided a means of rescue and and freedom from it in Christ. 
And so we strap on that gear of the gospel together today by faith. We say yes to what you say is true about us and true about Christ. Would you forgive us for the slightest inch of presumption in our church, in our souls, in our commonwealth? We pray today for the state of Massachusetts. I don't have a clue how you would do this, but I pray that somebody would be awakened to the truth about who God is and who we once were, and that a generation of legislators and leaders would rise up who are caught in the embrace of fear and love. I pray for the church in Melrose, in Boston. I pray that you would raise up a generation of leaders who are caught in the embrace of fear and love and rescue sinners from the wrath of God, by the grace of God, to the love of God. And I pray for ourselves and our kids, and I pray that if anything, Lord, we would not be marked by presumption. None of us would go rogue and kick aside your provision of grace, but that we would lean into it with all of our hearts. Thank you for the glories of Scripture, but thank you for the warnings, too. We need to hear them, and I pray that we would hear them clearly this morning. Hear us in that prayer and meet us, I pray. Amen. All right, you get to act.